0: The myth is that technology is unbiased. But today's guest says the truth is more complex. and explains how bias and discrimination creep into the algorithms that shape the modern world. She's Meredith Broussard, this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello, and welcome to a Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Ludis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University.
1: And I'm G. Wayne Miller, also with Salve's Pell Center.
0: Our guest this week is Meredith Broussard, an associate professor at New York University. Meredith is also the author of an important new book, More Than a Glitch Confronting Race, Gender, Bias, and Ability Bias in Tech. She joins us today from New York. Meredith, it's so great to have you with us.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, the book is really terrific and I learned a lot reading it. We're going to talk about that, but I thought as sort of a a primer, we should start talking about artificial intelligence as a technology itself. So for those in our audience who might not know what AI is, could you give us that sort of 30,000 foot crash course?
2: Absolutely. Uh, We all talk a lot about artificial intelligence nowadays, but when it comes right down to it, there's a little bit of confusion about what it actually is. So the easiest way to think about it is that artificial intelligence is just math. It's very complicated, beautiful math. Uh, It's computational statistics on steroids, right? So one of the problems is we kind of tend to think about Hollywood images of AI as the first thing that springs to mind. We all think about the Terminator or Star Wars or Star Trek or any of the other really fun Hollywood things, Uh, and those are so great to talk about, but the reality of AI is that it's just math. Uh, It is not beyond anybody's understanding, and it is also not going to take over anytime soon.
0: It, when, when, so I think that's probably the, the, the popular conception, right? Is that uh, you know uh, uh, Terminator is going to come back and time travel, and, and because the machines have taken over. But when we think about the way AI is actually being used today, what is that? What how is it being used?
2: Well, people talk about AI as if it's this new magnificent thing that is going to replace people. And I would really love for our conversation collectively to shift onto uh, the practical realities of artificial intelligence and the actual harms that are being suffered by people at the hands of AI nowadays. So take, for example, uh, a recent investigation by the markup, uh, which I wrote about in the book Uh, And the markup looked into mortgage approval algorithms. And what they found was that automated mortgage approval algorithms were 40 to 80% more likely to deny borrowers of color as opposed to their white counterparts. And in some Metro areas, that disparity was more than 250%. And you might wonder why is the mortgage algorithm, mortgage approval algorithm being biased in this way? Well, we can think about how we make these algorithmic systems? How do we make machine learning systems? And actually we make them the same way every time. What we do is we take data, as much data as we can possibly find, we send it into the computer and we say, computer, make a model. The computer says, okay, here's your model. And the model shows the mathematical patterns in the data. So then you can use that model to make decisions, to make predictions, to generate new text, to generate new images. It's a very flexible and powerful model. But the mathematical patterns in the data are the historical patterns and often they're patterns of bias. So in the case of mortgages, we know from studying sociology and history in the U.S., there's a history of residential segregation. Uh, there's a history of redlining, of financial discrimination. So what the model is picking up on is it's also picking up on those very human patterns of historical bias.
0: You know, Meredith, when I worked uh, earlier in my career in the national security community, and we'd be talking about war games or simulations, one of the, th- one of the adages that we often uh, would re- repeat was that garbage in, garbage out. Uh, That the data that we put into the simulation or the war game was as that's what we were going to get out as well. Is that what we're talking about with AI as well?
2: That is absolutely the case with AI systems. Uh, So an AI system is only going to know about the data that you feed it with. And one of the problems that happens is that people have a little bit too much faith in data. Uh, They think that the data is more objective or more neutral or more unbiased, Uh, and that is itself a kind of bias that I call techno chauvinism. It's the belief that technological solutions are superior to others. Uh, Instead, what I would argue is that we should think about using the right tool for the task, because sometimes the right tool for the task is undoubtedly a computer sometimes it's something simple like a book in the hands of a child sitting on a parent's lap and one is not you know better or worse than the other it's about again the right tool for the task
1: so meredith you gave the example of bias in mortgages but that's one of only only one of many many biases that we find can you get into some of the others as you do in the book
2: In the book, I write about the ways that AI bias manifests in uh, financial services, in uh, policing, in medicine, in education, uh, because we are using AI systems in every realm nowadays. Uh, And with the launch of generative AI like ChatGPT, the adoption of AI is only accelerating. The problem is that Algorithmic systems discriminate by default, right? This idea of discrimination by default is one that we got from Ruha Benjamin's really amazing book, Race After Technology. And this is a different way of thinking about algorithmic systems. It's not about techno chauvinism. Uh, It's about looking for the problems, the very human problems inside algorithmic systems so that we can start to have these hard conversations about how exactly are AI systems discriminating? And can we do something about it? Because actually there are mathematical methods that we can use uh, in order to put, the, put a thumb on the scale and make systems uh, you know, more just. Uh, it's not possible to do in every case, but it is possible to do sometimes. But you have to admit first that there's a
0: problem so one of the pieces that I found so compelling in the book is the 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 cases that you explain about facial recognition systems so maybe for our audience who hasn't had the benefit of reading the book yet you could explain why those systems are so flawed and whether or not they're even redeemable
2: well yeah facial recognition is a a very big deal uh and One of the things that I write about in the book is a case of a man in Detroit who was arrested because of a faulty match in a facial recognition system. Uh, And I also write about the work of Joy Bolamwini and Timnit Cabru in the Gender Shades paper, uh, where that was the that kind of revealed to the world that facial recognition systems are biased that they're better at recognizing light skin than dark skin. They're better at recognizing men than women. They generally don't have trans and non-binary folks uh, in their databases at all. Uh, And when you look at the intersectional accuracy of these systems, they're best of all at recognizing men with light skin. They're worst of all at recognizing women with dark skin. Mm. So let's think about using this AI, this kind of AI in a particular context, right? Because it's not really about is AI good or bad, it's about how effective is AI in a particular context. And in the context of policing, what happens is that facial recognition is disproportionately weaponized against communities of color, against poor communities, against communities who are already over-policed, over-surveilled. So really the solution is not to make the facial recognition better for, say, people with darker skin. The correct solution is not to use facial recognition in, in policing at all.
0: You know, as, as I read that particular case, which was infuriating, uh, part of what struck me, though, was that law enforcement in that particular case relied simply on what the machine had said the match was. Uh, It didn't Mm -hmm. seem like they had actually done the investigation, but they still detained this gentleman uh, for several hours, even after they knew that he was uh, not the person in the photograph. So So I understand what you're saying about the bias in the system, but it's also part of the message, don't take what the machine says as the word of God.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a it's a techno chauvinist belief that what comes out of the computer is always true. Right. So what happens inside organizations is that people will invest a lot of money in a computer system. And then there are all these people whose jobs depend on using the computer system because they've been told you have to use the computer system. And so if they don't use the computer system, then it takes away from, you know, the validity of their job. They feel like they have to use it and they feel like they have to have faith in, you know, in what the computer says. Mm -hmm. I would much rather that people understand more about algorithms and feel empowered to say, hey, this computational decision is unfair or unjust or just plain wrong. Right. But think about what happens when, you know, something goes wrong on your phone or something goes wrong on your computer. I often people blame themselves. They think, oh, I must be doing something wrong. I blame the person who made that computer program, <laughs> right? It's probably some kind of mistake that they made that I am then having to deal with. And, you know, I, I would just like to shift the frame a little bit, or shift the blame maybe. Mm-hmm.
1: So Meredith, one of the surprises for me in your book was the use of AI in medicine and healthcare. And as a journalist, I've covered medicine and healthcare for a very long time. I guess I was sort of dimly aware that AI had entered that, that realm, uh, but expand on that. Tell us how it's used and, and what the biases are there. Again, that to me it was like, whoa, seriously?
2: There were so many surprises for me personally uh, reporting those couple of chapters where I talk about bias in medicine and AI. Uh, I think that the uh, that the case that has stuck with me is the case of uh, the EGFR calculation, which is a calculation that is used to figure out when somebody is eligible for the kidney transplant list, right? So not just the uh, the moment when they get a new kidney, uh, but when they're eligible to wait on the list for weeks or months or years to get a donor kidney. So you're eligible for the list when your EGFR score is 20. So your kidney function has declined to about 20%. And the way that your EGFR is calculated is based on you know a number of different lab tests. Well, for many, many years, There was a racist assumption embedded in the calculation used to determine EGFR. And the idea, the racist idea there was that Black people have greater muscle mass than other people. And so, because Black people were thought to have greater muscle mass, they were given an additional multiplier, meaning that Black patients had to be sicker in order to qualify for the kidney transplant list. I am delighted to say that as a result of activism by patients, by medical professionals uh, working with industry associations, uh, that calculation has changed. Uh, It actually changed while I was writing the book, thank goodness. Uh, And now the calculation does not include race as a factor. So there's been progress but it's a really good example of why we need to examine the underlying medical systems before we start implementing them in AI systems, in algorithmic systems. Because the way that a data scientist would uh, come into this situation and you know try and build something that predicts uh, you know when somebody is going to need to be on the kidney donor list or predict where they're going to uh, where there's going to be a need for donor kidneys is the data scientist would come in and ask, okay, what is the algorithm that you use? what is the calculation you use for figuring out when somebody is eligible and then they would just plug that in, right We really need to examine the underlying systems that we're using before we start implementing them inside AI. Because once a racist calculation like this gets embedded in an AI system, once it gets embedded in code, it becomes very difficult to see and almost impossible to eradicate.
0: We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's Popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS Channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at JMLutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Meredith Broussard, an associate professor at New York University. She is also the author of an important new book, More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. You can follow Meredith on Twitter at Mayor Broussard. That's M-E-R-B-R-O-U-S-S-A-R-D.
1: So you gave the the great example of kidney transplantation, and of course that's hardly the only place, the only part of medicine where bias exists. You also mentioned that activists change that. And so sort of a broad general question, how can we change, how can people, how can medicine change these other biases as well? Does it require activism? Does it require better education? You know, at, at hospitals, how, does, how, how do we get to a better place is really what I'm asking.
2: Well, I think it starts with pushing back against techno chauvinism. It starts with pushing back against the idea that a data driven system is going to be superior. Uh, and then we need more computational literacy overall. Uh, and then we also need to audit our systems, evaluate them for uh, you know, quality assessment of what's going into these systems, and we need to audit the outputs of the systems and see if there's discrimination, bias, differential impact. So, a good example of this is a skin uh, skin app that Google came out with a few years ago. The idea was that you would take a picture of a skin condition and submit it to the app, and then Google would give you information about this uh you know about this skin condition. They were very careful not to say diagnosis because if they had said diagnosis, it would have been a medical device and they would have had to get it registered with the FDA and you know they were very, very careful about the language that they used. Uh, but it was an AI system. It was image recognition, you know, and facial recognition I mentioned earlier has a problem with representation. Part of that problem comes from the data sets that are used to train these systems. And guess what? The Google Skin app had the same problem. Mm. It was really bad at recognizing skin conditions on darker skin because it had been mostly fed with pictures of lighter skin. And skin issues look different on different colors of skin. Uh, Dermatologists really need to be trained with uh, pictures of conditions on a range of skin tones. However, if you look at all medical education, uh, you know the industry is not doing a fantastic job of having representation in the textbooks. You know, doctors, nurses have told me that during their training, uh, they were not presented with images of uh, anything other than light skin you know, which makes it difficult to, uh, you know, to learn how to diagnose different conditions uh, on people with different skin tones, right? So it's, it's really not just about the AI, it's about the human system as well. So when something like the Google Skin app happens and it doesn't work well on darker skin, we need to look at that not as a glitch, as a momentary blip, uh, but we need to look at it as a signifier of a larger social problem, some bigger problem that needs solving.
0: Yeah Meredith, what I keep thinking as we're having this conversation is that uh, if you are if you have a biased analog anything and you digitize it, the bias will still be in the digitized version of that thing, even if it's you know fancier and newer and, 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 and shinier. A hundred percent. When you talk uh, about representation in textbooks though, I'm also wondering about just representation in the tech industry. Uh, and is part of the challenge uh, a lack of representation from diverse communities, generally speaking in STEM fields overall?
2: Absolutely, yes. Uh, if there were a greater uh, range of people in the rooms when decisions were being made in Silicon Valley, product design decisions were being made. And if those diverse voices were empowered to speak up, then we would see very different products coming out of Silicon Valley. Uh, One example I like to to use is the example of the racist soap dispenser. Uh, You've probably seen this viral video Uh, two men go into a bathroom, Uh, one has light skin, one has dark skin. The man with light skin puts his hand under the soap dispenser. Soap comes out. Man with dark skin puts his hand in the soap dispenser and there's no soap. You might think, hey, maybe it just broke. You know, that happens. But then the man with dark skin goes and gets a white paper towel, puts it under the soap dispenser and the soap comes. Mm. So the soap dispenser is racist. I don't think that the creators intended to make a racist soap dispenser. Like that's just, that doesn't, that doesn't compute for me. I think probably what happened is they were a group of people with light skin. They tested it on themselves and on their friends and family and said, Oh, works for us, must work for everybody. Right? So it's a kind of unconscious bias. We all have unconscious bias. We're all working every day to become better people, but we're not there yet. We are not perfect. Uh, And so what happens is we embed our own unconscious biases in the technology that we create. So if we have more people in the room who have different kinds of backgrounds, we can check our unconscious biases and we can do a better job of evaluating our technology before we roll it out.
1: So Meredith, AI really burst into the headlines in the last several months but there's a long history of AI. And you get into that, you recap some of that, you tell some of that in your book. Can you give us an overview of the history? It's a long history. This didn't just happen with Chatbot and you know some people who came up with a new version of AI. Give us the history, if you can, please.
2: Yeah, I've been studying and building AI for a very long time. And one of the terrific things for me about the cultural conversation right now is that you know, now I can say, "Oh, I do AI at a cocktail party," and people actually want to talk to me. Said, <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, artificial intelligence actually started in 1956 uh, at a meeting at the Dartmouth Math Department. Uh, it was a meeting of about ten men uh, trained in uh, trained in mathematics, and you know, mostly at Ivy League institutions, and they got together. And decided they were going to have a new field of study, and they were going to call it artificial intelligence. Uh, we had earlier fields of study called uh, cybernetics, which was about how people and machines work together. Uh, but the folks at the Dartmouth Math Department meeting uh, had beef with the cybernetics folks. so they said, all right, we want a uh, we want a different name. Uh, which I find kind of charming that, you know, there was this entire scientific field that started as, you know, as beef. Uh, so they, which as is pretty common, they decided what are the uh, central questions of this new field? And they decided that uh, a computer would be intelligent if it could beat a human being at chess, right? This was an unsolved problem. Why did they think this? Because they all really liked chess and they were smart and they thought, well, smart people like chess. And so if we can get the computer to be good at chess, the computer will be artificially intelligent.
0: Yeah, Meredith, we've got a little bit uh, less than a minute to go here. I'm curious though, if you could, uh, there've been some, some reports in the news uh, about some insiders and in tech companies leaving because they were concerned about how the direction that AI was moving in Uh, There was discussion of whether or not the the AIs were becoming, I think the term was spooky, Uh, like they were actually alive and had actual intelligence, not just a big uh, data crunching capability. Can you speak to that? Is there anything in the development of this field that you've been concerned about and are worried about from that perspective, beyond the bias that you're talking about in the book?
2: So I look at, uh, I look at kind of the coverage that's out there uh, with a kind of different perspective. Uh, There was a story in the Times where reporter Kevin Roos had an interaction with an AI where it encouraged him to leave his wife for the AI and, you know, talked about wanting to become sentient and wanting to burst out of the computer. And yeah, a lot of people read that story and said, oh, it seems spooky. I read that story differently. I read the story and I thought, oh, this is about the training data, right? Mm-hmm. So, ChatGPT, BARD, all the other generative AIs, they're trained on uh, large data sets. And one of them is a data set called the Common Crawl. And the Common Crawl data set is made by some people who made uh, what are called you know, web crawlers or spiders. They crawl around the web and they collect web pages. Well, you know what there's a lot of fan fiction about on the web? <laughs> there is an awful lot of online fiction about computers that want to become sentient. Oh. And uh, you know, generative AI is also trained on chat logs. Guess what? There's a lot of people who cheat or who, you know, text each other, like, oh, I want you to leave your, you know, leave your partner for me. So, like, really it's a manifestation of What's in the training data?
0: We've got to leave it there, but Meredith Broussard, the book is more than a glitch, and it's really important. We're out of time. He's Wayne. I'm Jim. We hope we'll see you again next week for more Story in the Public Square.